everybody, and welcome back to Coffee and Convos. This is Kelsey, and I'm here with my friend, Sammy. Uh, Sammy and I met uh, in the business world. We worked together. We kind of trauma bonded through a scrappy early stage startup. So we are going to kind of jump right in. We were talking before recording about manifesting and what that looks like for each of us. And you're going to kind of just jump right into the middle of it. We just got done talking about uh, manifesting as a visual aid and actually envisioning the gritty steps that it takes to get to the end goal and how that can help you manifest your way to the goal. So welcome, Sammy, and thanks for coming on. Thanks, Kelsey. So yeah, I, was, I have like a couple of thoughts around manifesting a couple different ways I think about it. And the the first ties back into kind of what you said in the intro of like your thoughts make your reality. And so the more you're thinking about what you want out of your reality, the more likely you are to intentionally make choices that will move you towards that reality, whether it's like getting up, even though it's raining and putting on your shoes and going on a run, because you have in your mind every day, the goal of running the 5k or whatever. And then I think there's like really interesting science happening right now and about things that I don't even understand, but quantum mechanics and connections between things. And I think there is a possible future in which we find out that our thoughts are powerful in ways that we don't currently understand. Um, And that all of those things together are what shape our realities every day. So I, I think that manifesting is something that gets like a bad rep a little bit as being like super woo woo, but people do it all the time and just like setting their goals Mm -hmm. and saying what they want and then taking action towards those goals. Did you ever, I know when we were working together, I sent you a podcast on synchronicities. Did you ever listen to that? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. A great example of you you meet somebody and you find these weird similarities kind of like we did. And there's actually science behind that and how synchronicities work and how they impact the people that you meet and the paths that you take. And I think you're right that there's probably going to be research and science that even further backs manifesting than it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy to think about it that way. And it like always leads me down the rabbit hole of like all of the things we don't know or don't understand. Like it's so easy this is a departure as it always is with me, I feel like, but it's so easy to look back in history and say like, how could the people back then not have thought of XYZ thing or not have known this or thought the world was flat or whatever it was, but um, it's not so easy to think about yourself as that historical person, you know, and like all of the discoveries we have yet to uncover. Um that will change the way we understand ourselves and our realities. So anyway, that was manifesting. (laughs) So nobody in my life really knows you other than Colin kind of just from being physically in our house because we work remotely together on camera all the time. So just for those who don't know you, Sammy 
is kind of a walking icebreaker. <laughs> we came up with that term when we were working together. She can fill any silence and start and continue any conversation. So don't be surprised if this turns into an interview from for of me from Sammy. <laughs> yeah. I love it. It definitely helps. I'm not. I hate awkward social situations and Sammy fills that void really nicely. <laughs> yeah, I I wonder where that comes from from me and I think part of it is probably like being a midwesterner growing up as a midwesterner and you're like always taught to make sure no one is uncomfortable you know like to fill that void but then also from the fact that I just am so interested in learning like random things and then it blows my mind and I'm like how can I not share this with the people around me yeah Uh, so I'm always like off on a tangent I feel like (laughs) my sister says um she's like you can you can go to Samantha and ask her like anything about random random stuff and she'll have something to say about it but then you ask her like when her flight to her own birthday party is or whatever it is and she has no idea what's going on that's (laughs) a great very accurate description of you (laughs) yeah yeah, like when's that meeting again? But <laughs> like five different random facts to share when I when I eventually do get to the meeting. I remember when so when I went to New York, I think it was the last time, and you had the tarot cards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Sammy, I don't know. You said you found them at a checkout counter, right? Yeah, at like a there's this bookstore called Half Price Books. I think that's where I found them, but it's like it's my favorite bookstore ever. They're literally just half price books. They're <laughs> sold. And they had this tarot deck that like um stood out to me. I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a typical thing for you to do. Just pick up the tarot cards at the checkout counter and then bring them with you wherever you're going and yeah. decide this seems like a great time to open a pack of these. Which one do you want? Yeah. yeah I'll have them I keep them in my drawer (laughs) I love that I I have like progressively gotten more and more into these like woo woo things but I like to try to find the like logic and reason or science behind them and I think that's probably like something that I get from my dad who is very much a logical scientific person but with tarot cards, I find that it's such a helpful tool in self-reflection. Mm-hmm. And like, there's always, there's always something to learn about yourself or about situations you're in. And by using like this external tool, it helps you look at things in ways that you probably wouldn't have naturally or hadn't yet looked at them. And so I like to keep tarot cards around (laughs) all the time in my purse and stuff and I love bringing those little like three pack ones to share with people it was it was good timing and the messages were good on the card does always feel like it works out that way right (laughs) so the science background from your dad makes sense what about kind of the interest in the woo-woo side of things is your mom like that at all or is this a Sammy only trait you know she is now (laughs) Um, but I do think that I influenced her. I will, I do have to say like, 
science is kind of a, a thing I get from both of my parents. My mom is also a scientist. She uh, is a nurse, but she was growing up always the more like spiritually connected of my two parents. So I think there is some influence coming from that side of things. But my dad, like he would laugh at tarot cards and astrology and things like that. And I would, if I had the opportunity to ask him, I would like to ask him about it from a scientific perspective, because I think like astrology, for example, if you think of it as like data collection over thousands of years of what kind of behaviors were happening at certain times of the year or or whatever, when certain planets were Mm -hmm. aligned, it won't always be right, but it's like directional data. And why, I don't know, that makes a lot of sense to me, probably coming from a performance marketing background. (laughs) And like, that's a lot of years for people to collect information. Um, I think that there's at least a little bit of merit in using those tools to help you perceive your reality and who you are. And now you're transitioning us into marketing, which also explains why I always thought that you'd be a great resource to bridge performance and brand marketing. Because it's like the data analysis of performance marketing meets the creative customer-centric brand marketing side of things. Yeah, I think if I had to describe my perfect role, that is what it would be. And that's what I've tried to like weasel my way into, whether or not it's in my job title. Um even like when I was going to college and trying to decide what I wanted to do, which is crazy. That's a whole nother thing. Like that crazy that we have to choose what we want to do when we're so young. Um, at the school I went to, there were two kind of marketing options. You could go to the adversi- advertising school and the journalism school, which was the more creative route and what brand marketers would take, or you could go through the marketing program in the business school. And that was more what a performance marketer would be interested in. And um, I have always considered myself very naturally inclined to creative things like drawing when I was a kid and writing, you know, I wanted to be an author when I was in like second grade when I could barely even (laughs) write a sentence. Um, So my thought process was, I should go to the business school because I'm not as naturally good at the scientific and analytical things. And when I first graduated and was finding a job, I was a little worried that I had made a mistake because the jobs that I was able to get or to get interviews for were the more like data um, or like lot logistical kind of jobs that weren't as interesting to me um but I think it was kind of meant to be in that I had to I had to take the classes to learn the things that I needed to be stronger in and then I had to experience some of those entry-level positions that were not as exciting to be able to give me the foundation that has led me to a place where I am both analytical and creative on a daily basis. So I think that was a very mature decision for 18 year old Sammy to make (laughs) the opposite decision and went the journalism communications route because it's what I enjoyed. And Mm -hmm. then went back and got an MBA because I felt that I was missing some of the 
higher level, strategic, more business minded skills from a formal education perspective. Mm -hmm. It is crazy that you're 18 years old, you're out of high school where you've been sheltered for lack of a better word. And now you have to make a decision that potentially is going to impact the rest of your career. But I've also found that I think choosing your major is maybe given more weight than necessary because at the end of the day, you have a four-year degree and most job descriptions will say in business, communications, marketing, or similar fields. Yeah. It's really just to get your foot in the door. (laughs) I do agree. I think that you learn most of what you need to know on the job anyway. And it's also, there are things that will be the same across companies. And I think that's, it becomes more true the higher up you get and the more into the strategic side you get. But things are also different from company to company. There's different internal lingo. There's different systems and things that you're going to have to learn at different jobs anyway. So I do agree that choosing a major, especially like an undergraduate program is not as intense as it feels. I think for me personally, there was a confidence issue in that if I wouldn't have strengthened those analytical muscles, I wouldn't have believed that I could do those things or learn those things on my own time. Um, And I think, I don't know that I was aware that that's why I was making those choices at the time. You know, it was masked by, oh, this is the logical thing to do. But I don't think that if you have the confidence in like, I can learn what I need to learn or I can teach myself the things, you know, that are missing, then as long as you are a hard worker and a lot of, yeah, a lot of jobs look for like a four-year degree. So if you're looking for that kind of job, if you have a four-year degree, you'll be able to learn what you need to know on, on the job. Yeah. My undergrad was intended to be used in writing and editing and magazine journalism, which is not at all what I'm doing. And I did freelance a little bit as a writer right out of college and locally for an education magazine. But other than that, my actual job has morphed more into the data and business side of things, which when I was learning on the job, it was stressful (laughs) because I didn't have the foundation, but you figure it out and hopefully you have a good mentor. Did that happen before you went back for your MBA? Like you were leaning into performance marketing or an analytical role? Yeah. So I started, I really started out in social media marketing, which was at the time it was more creative than data. And then obviously as things evolved and social became so huge and integral to business, that started to change. And my scope of work started to evolve into other channels like email and not really even SMS yet at the time, email and then Google ads. I remember learning how to manage those as well. And it was kind of just hands-on figure it out. I didn't have a mentor yet at that age and at that point in our company. And then over the next, I would say two to three years early on is when um, I really started to build professional relationships with people across the org in marketing specifically, even though they weren't necessarily doing digital that were able to teach me the ways of KPIs and compiling data and analyzing it and using it to build insights. Um, So it was kind of um, by happenstance (laughs) and Mm -hmm. learning on the fly for a couple of years early on. Yeah. I mean, that's, I would say that's how my career developed too, though, is really through like 
through a bit of happenstance. I don't, you just don't, there were jobs there. The job that I have right now mm-hmm. is a job that I didn't even know existed when I was going to school. So it feels like you're kind of stumbling through these experiences and unless you're very, very lucky, it's going to be a lot of learning what you don't like to guide you into a role that is what your ideal is. I think um, a lot of, I think a lot of that disconnect between what you learn in college and then what's actually happening in the world just comes down to outdated or delayed curriculum in the programs because even getting my MBA a couple of years ago in one of I wanted to do a dual focus in marketing and uh, management. So I took a few marketing electives. I chose digital marketing. That was maybe a mistake because I have been living and breathing digital marketing my entire career. And I really could feel the disconnect between the curriculum and then how things are actually managed mm-hmm. in ads, in creative, in email. I mean, it was very basic. It was, here's what a keyword is versus here's how you build a keyword strategy. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of that disconnect is just from curriculum being slow in comparison to what is happening, especially in digital and in e-commerce, which if you stop paying attention for a week, you fall behind. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, an interesting point. And even myself looking back, I can see that in some of the marketing courses I was taking um, in undergrad, but I think it it's going to become even more of a problem, which is and I don't have remotely an answer to, but it's a very interesting problem to think about. And that like, as technology advances, it advances progressively more and more quickly. And already things are outdated in textbooks and learning materials and stuff. So how is that remedied? And I mean, I, it takes me back to like a lot of learning on the job and learning as you go and supplementing your education it's it's an interesting time we live in even this ai boom that we're Mm -hmm. in it feels like we're suddenly in it overnight but Mm -hmm. ai has been a part of the conversation for several years now it's only i think with chat gbt that became so mainstream that people actually started to talk about it and understand it and play with it firsthand just normal people out in the world not just software engineers not just marketers And now the SaaS industry is declining a little bit right now, except for those in the AI sector, which is suddenly in a big boom. So it's like, that feels like it happened overnight. And it kind of did happen overnight. Yeah. For a lot of people, it did happen overnight to your point. I think that we, when you're living through historical moments, it's off, like, it's hard to feel like, oh, this is history, but I think this is one of those moments for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that depending on what happens with, you know, AI regulation, that could change things, but it's possible that our entire work life will be very, like, very different in Mm -hmm. five years than what it looked like five years ago. It already is pretty yeah. different than what it looked like five years ago. I was going to say it are, it already is starting to be different and you're trying to find this balance between can AI do it for you versus how does it help you? Mm-hmm. And the kind of people in the workforce that feel as though people higher up in the company that maybe don't understand the actual execution side of things are forcing AI tools in order to do the work and make it more efficient when really 
maybe they should be used as guidelines, supportive tools and systems that you would use any other kind of automation tool. Yeah, I think as it exists right now, AI is only really useful as um, supplementary support for like human guidance. I think that could change really quickly. I think that like if I think that the technological advancements we had between the year 1900 and 2000 were extreme. And I think that like as technology gets more advanced, the extreme difference in the technology will remain the same, but the timeline of when it will be implemented will dramatically shift. Mm -hmm. So I think that it will feel like we're in the year 1900 with AI today. And then five years from now, we're in the year 2000 with AI instead of a hundred years from now. And that is a little bit scary because I think that's, I mean, that's the problem or that's the thing that everyone's trying to solve for. Um, But I agree with you right now. It really is useful as like an assistant, Mm-hmm. You know, there's not, I haven't experienced at least any tools that have proven to me that they could completely take over. Um, I am like actually onboarding an AI um, customer service tool mm-hmm. and we haven't implemented it uh, fully yet. So I don't have like any really robust learnings to share um, and I won't say the name since they're not sponsoring your podcast. <laughs> we'll save that for a possible second episode if they like yeah. sponsor it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I see the potential in this tool to someday be able to do the job of some of our customer service representatives. Mm-hmm. And as a person who is part of the decision-making process and, and taking on this tool, I really feel a little conflicted in that it has the potential to take jobs from these people. It also has the potential to answer questions in the middle of the night that if we employed humans for that position wouldn't necessarily work out, you know, unless we worked out time zones or, or something like that. So I think that there's a lot of unanswered questions on what to do with the the AI boom, but I do think we're living through history. Yeah. I was at a conference a month or two ago and someone that I was talking to at the networking hour said, AI is such a loose term now. Everything is AI. And it's true. It has, it's not as defined as it once was. You know, you hear about AI backed search bots, AI backed customer service tools, AI-backed customer segment builders and copy optimizers. I mean, there's all kinds of case use cases for it. So what that looks like in the future is probably yet to be determined. And someone smarter than me will figure it out. And then people around the table like yourself will have to figure out how to implement it in a way that makes sense for a business. Yeah. Yeah, it is going to change the landscape for sure of, of, digital marketing and e-commerce as a whole. I would just like for e-commerce to start getting recognized as an industry (laughs) because I feel like when you talk about digital marketing or working in direct to consumer, that has a lot of different meanings, but there's never 
when something asks you, what industry do you work in? There's always a marketing option. Mm-hmm. There's always a retail option. There's never e-commerce. Hmm. I've never thought about that. I always do feel like, what do I select here? What do you select and how do you explain it? And you say e-com to somebody who's outside of the space and they're like, so what do you sell online? <laughs> you're right. like, it's bigger than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've never thought about that, but I do always struggle to know what to choose. I probably pick marketing, but it doesn't really encompass all of the things that as a e-commerce person, you think about do. Yeah. E-commerce is it's a distribution channel direct to your consumer. So it's not just marketing, it's marketing, it's customer service, it's inventory, it's logistics and fulfillment. Yeah. Basically any way, anything that's going to impact how somebody buys something online and gets it to their door mm-hmm. is considered e-commerce. And that's, I think that's an area where businesses are still trying to figure out how to structure it within their traditionally sales or retail organizations. How does that fit? How, what resources do you share with the broader organization versus not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think speaking of living through history, the the pandemic in 2020 changed the e-commerce world. And like, I remember I in 2020 joined a purely D2C brand at the time. Now they are D2C and in retail, but I was coming from a big kind of um legacy company that was very much ingrained in the retail world and also had a digital footprint but wasn't the biggest part of their business so it was kind of a crazy time to step into a full fully e-commerce experience and I remember it everything was up and like up by crazy amounts because the only option was to shop online and in fact, my experience prior to that job was a hybrid digital and retail marketer. And so I was thinking a lot about what does retail look like and what is the future of retail and thinking about experiential retail and getting people to the store. And then the pandemic hit and nobody was going to stores. And at the time I was like, wow, I feel like I dodged a bullet because I'm not working on retail and retail is not open and D2C was doing so well. Um, And now we live in a world where both are important and both have a role and e-commerce is trying to find their like normal, like I think trying to settle back into what would be a stable normal. Um, And I, I think that the retail question still exists of, retail of the future isn't fluorescent lights and big box stores. And I I think it's interesting to think about how your brand shows up in all of those places. And where do you, where are you okay with cannibalization for, you know, brand awareness or how do you manage customers in an omni-channel experience? And, you know, people are looking for those personalized experiential moments, whether it is in person or through an email and it's getting, um, it's requiring more and more strategy and sophistication when like looking at customer cohorts and interacting with them. I can't say that I actually have a ton of experience 
right now in the retail world since that last job, I've been pretty focused on e-commerce and D2C, but it's something that does interest me to think about. Or when I go into a store that's doing a really good job at um, clienteling, which is, you know, an age old (laughs) tactic, but, Mm -hmm. or has like a really interesting um, pop-up going on or something like that. It, It brings to mind the thoughts about where will retail be in 10 years when AI is in the store with you or shopping for you. Right. When those two things meet, I think it all comes down to organizations being nimble enough to evolve and change when they need to, right? Because 2020, like you just said, store shut down. If you weren't online or if you couldn't adapt to being online or adapt to buy online, pick up in store very quickly, you fell behind. So come 2021, if you didn't adapt and your systems weren't in place to accommodate that, you probably were not experiencing the second level highs that everybody else was. And you're probably still trying to catch up mm-hmm. now, 2023, the name of the game is omni-channel, right? Mm-hmm. So now e-com is dead is something that we hear a lot, broad, broad language to use across multiple industries. E-com is not dead. It's just not where it was in 2020. And now what is that new normal and how does it tie into retail sales, any other distribution channels that your organization might have? Because come 2024, 2025, there could be another big shift or another big disruption, whether it's AI or something else that requires you to make a change again. So how do you continue to move your business forward while also staying nimble enough to evolve on a dime? Yeah, I totally agree. And I agree that e-com is not dead. I don't think it would take a lot of change in the world Mm -hmm. um, or like lack of internet for e-com to be dead completely, in my opinion. People are always going to want the convenience of being able to purchase online. They also, I think, are always going to want the convenience of being able to purchase in person. Whichever experience is more convenient to them, I think, is what it comes down to. And the shift towards e-com happened when something exceptional happened to society mm-hmm. just as exceptional as if the internet didn't exist and that was that people couldn't go outside and but that's what it took to you know shift so much of the retail um dollars to e-commerce and so to your point i think now it's just finding the balance in an omni-channel world and that's a question that a lot of a lot of performance marketers and e-commerce managers are thinking about and having to explain. I'm sure there's an infographic out there somewhere of how the pandemic impacted the e-commerce space in comparison to other major disruptions in history. I think that would be interesting to see. I also think, um, imagine being somebody right out of college in 2020 and you get your first job and it's remote. And you're experiencing not only crazy highs in terms of business performance, but you're also experiencing crazy busy times in terms of execution and trying to get new product out the door and dealing with supply chain issues. And now you're three years into your your career and things are falling flat or they're coming down from where they were previously. And you don't have any broader experience to say, okay, this is normal. We expected this to happen. Mm-hmm. you're thinking, is this what it's like now? Imagine being that new yeah. new person in an e-com role. 
Then also imagine being an early investor. Maybe you decided to invest in a brand or invest in a business in 2020. And now you're in 2023 and you're trying to decide, was this a bad investment? Was that a lucky two or three years and now I need to get out or do I weather the storm? And what does that look like? Yeah. I, it's really hard to imagine being a new graduate at that time. Yeah. And it's like the time I had a, a lot of sympathy for people who were graduating in 2020 and missing out on the last semester of their college experience and then having to go into their first career fully remotely and like how much I remember how much it mattered to be in the room in my first job and just learning through you know overhearing conversations or being in a meeting room even when I wasn't you know there for a specific purpose, which I think happens less on Zoom. Um, Though I have to caveat and say I'm a huge remote work fan. And that's (laughs) one of the things I look for in jobs. So it is, it's important to me. And I think that it's a good thing to, it's a good perk to afford people if you can. But I do think young people, at least some of them crave the in-person and, and learn a lot from being um, in the room. So it's hard to imagine being in that position and then layering on top of that, the drastic difference in performance and learning about KPIs and budgeting and forecasting and all those things. And then three years into practicing, things just change dramatically and things that were working so well two years ago don't work at all anymore. And yeah, not having any other like legacy information from past experiences to lean on would be really hard. Mm -hmm. I also am a remote work fan and I pride myself in giving new employees a really strong onboarding experience. And I onboarded to recent graduates remotely during the pandemic and I did my best, but it was new for everybody. And it was not the same experience as getting them into an office. And it wasn't the same experience for me. It wasn't the same experience for them. We didn't have as strong of outcomes out of it. I think we've gotten a lot smarter now, right? We're three years into remote work. I think everybody has gotten better at onboarding employees remotely. But at the time we were all learning as we went. And this poor, these poor recent grads were also trying to learn their first job and learning from someone else who's learning as they go. So I can imagine it was a hard time to enter the workforce. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I I think it's interesting to think how that time will have ripple effects for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how e-commerce settles as like the dust settles. Mm-hmm. I think there are prob- there are brands that didn't make it through COVID from having to close down retail, and there are brands that aren't gonna make it through from having omni-channel kind of come back in full force so to your point you have to be able to adapt and companies are going to have to be able to adapt more and more quickly um, as technology changes which is what we're seeing with the ai boom and it's pretty crazy Mm -hmm. yeah so shifting gears a little bit this was not intended to be a d2c podcast but that's what happens when we talk. <laughs> uh, so you're making a move. You're going from 
Brooklyn, New York to Austin, Texas, both mm-hmm. opposite environment. So can you share a little bit about what's driving that and what's having you settle down in Austin? Yeah, that is a good question. I'm being asked that question quite a few times in the last couple of weeks, and I don't know that I've gotten my answer down to exactly uh, a science, so bear with me. But there's a myriad of factors that have come into play when thinking about leaving Brooklyn. Um, So I have been in Brooklyn for about seven years. I moved here after I graduated. I went to school for marketing, but as I kind of mentioned previously, I always have had this creative side and I wanted to express that. And so I I minored in fashion Mm -hmm. and my first job was working for a fashion company. So that's kind of where New York came into play. It was always a dream of mine. I'm from a very small town in the middle of nowhere. Um, And so it felt like the thing to do to try something completely different uh, as a new adult entering the world. Um, So long story short, I've been here for about seven years. My husband is from the area and has lived in Brooklyn for over 15 years. Um, and he's been ready to leave for a couple of years. It's very expensive to live here. Mm -hmm. And so that is definitely a big driving force. Um, it's doable. Millions of people do it every day, but we feel like the life that we want to live is not achievable right now in New York, basically. Um, we are ready for an in-unit washer and dryer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the only reason you need. <laughs> and so it's very bittersweet because, you know, my husband and I met in Brooklyn. I feel like I had my childhood in small town Missouri, but I grew up in New York. Mm-hmm. And I become the person that um, that I was trying to be, you know, in New York, it's just been such a big impact on my life. Um, but I think that as in all things in life, there are seasons and things are meant to end. And the only thing that you can count on is that things will change. And so I try to remain a little bit, um, you know, grateful for the experience, but detached from detached from it as well because all things change so we are moving to Austin because we want an in-unit washer and dryer and my sister just graduated vet school and she's been in LA the last four years and her and her fiance will be moving to Houston for her first job so they both he really likes LA I don't know um, if she likes it as much as he does, but they might end up back in LA someday. And it felt like we've been thinking about Austin for a while. And if there's a time to do it, it's while she is within driving distance and we can spend some more time together. So that was a factor. And in addition to the laundry. And then that begs the question, will your mom join you in Texas? That is the question of the year. (laughs) She's thinking about it. So my dad went to the University of Texas for law school and he and my mom were married at the time. So they both lived there and they moved about a year after I was born. So she 
lived in Texas for a couple of years and has had the experience. Granted, I'm sure it is much different 30 years later, almost 30 years later. Right. Um, but she's not stoked about the heat. Okay. So, and she is coming from like a place that has great weather all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think she is going to go to Texas for a little while at least and, you know, be around us, but she might change her mind and settle somewhere uh, a little bit different. She, I don't know where though. That's okay. the question of the year. I live in Florida and I can't get enough of the heat. So I don't understand that reasoning at all, but that'll be nice <laughs> that she might be there as well. Yeah. I'm, I, I'll be interested to see if that stands up once she's spent time in, in Texas and not to bring, I don't know. We'll see. Not to bring it back to business, but Texas has been booming in terms of private equity and brands opening headquarters there. I mean, that's become a go-to state. They're calling it like the next Silicon Valley. So mm-hmm. I'm sure it's completely different than when she used to live there. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is also part of the reason we chose Austin. My husband works um, kind in the tech industry. He's a UX UI designer, although recently he's taken on more um, CPG clients. So he has kind of both experiences, but initially when we were talking about it, he primarily worked in tech. And so we thought Austin is a good place. Um, Both of us have jobs that are remote right now, but in, in the case that he needs a new job or wants a new job, it seems like a good place to go um, from that perspective. But also the New York Times, the daily podcast, mm-hmm. did you see the episode? I think it's called Brain Drain or something. Mm-hmm. No. So they were talking about how big cities like New York and San Francisco are losing um, basically white collar workers to places like Austin, Texas, and Denver, and I'm sure there are others in there uh, because of cost of living. And so they they have a whole episode about interviewing people and why they're moving. And I found that specifically interesting because I sent it to my husband. I was like, you have to listen to this because they were talking about kind of what we are experiencing actively. Oh, I love when that happens. Yeah. Man, well, that's exciting and you'll be closer to me. So I'm happy about that. It's still a plane yeah. ride, but it's less yeah. of a plane ride. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll be in different time zones now, but just an hour. So it won't be that oh, big. I didn't think about that. Yeah. It'll be weird to go back to the central time zone because I, that's, I'm from Missouri and then I've been in New York for so long. Where, where are your coworkers mostly in terms of time zone? We are all over the place. Um, Kitch was founded in LA. And so the owners live in LA. There's a small office in LA. Um, And then we have employees in New York. We have an employee in Australia. We have employees in Vietnam. Uh, And then some of my colleagues, like my, on my team actually live in Austin and Dallas. So I'm excited to get to meet them in person because I've worked there for about six months now and we're fully remote. Um, and so I haven't met anyone except for my direct boss in person, but. Wow. Well, that's exciting. So your time zone situation will actually get better and more efficient from that perspective. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, 
which will be good. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Although we are moving in July to Texas, so it seems like we're kind of gluttons for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'll get used to it. It'll be nice. It'll be a nice, nice change of weather. Yeah. And well, also living in New York, like there aren't very many public pools or access to pools. Um, so I haven't, and I was a swimmer in high school, so I haven't been in a pool for exercise since I moved to New York and we will have a pool in our building. So I'm, I just bought my husband and I swim cap and <laughs> goggles. And okay. so I'm going to make him exercise with me in the pool. I love it. I remember when you, t- I think you told me that when I was in New York and I, it blew my mind, the fact that you hadn't been in a pool in so long and that it wasn't easily accessible because yeah. there are pools everywhere here. Mm-hmm. If you don't have one in your own single family home, you have one in your community. Yeah. So- I'm excited for you to have that as well. And I definitely want to see pictures of you guys in your swim caps. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it. I'm not looking forward to like dealing with chlorine in my hair, but that's that's definitely a problem that I'm willing to trade for being able to be in the pool a little more. Too bad you couldn't get a saltwater pool. Yeah, there maybe in the future when I move out of apartment living and into a house. Yeah. Are you still using your ice maker? Yeah, I am. <laughs> and we've had people. So some of the amenities that we are missing out on as Brooklynites are a normal sized fridge and dishwasher, um, garbage disposal, in unit washer dryer, and like a fridge that makes ice or just like ice in general. I, I feel like it is influenced by Europe because you go to Europe and there's water without ice and um it's often that way that way at restaurants in New York but I've lived too many years without ice and Kelsey had a brilliant idea last year to buy an ice maker off Amazon and I immediately did it and it has changed my life and I have been living in luxury ever since and you're well hydrated now yeah yeah <laughs> and so we've had people coming through our apartment, like touring it. And I've had two people ask me about the ice machine and if they can buy it off me. I'm like, sure, <laughs> because my new apartment will have an ice maker in the fridge. Yay. But yeah. also get on Amazon, not very expensive. No, all of those things that you listed not having feels so foreign to me. <laughs> I've never not had any of those things living in Florida. So have you seen... The, nin- the Ninja Creamy. Mm. There's no way you haven't seen this with your... T- it makes ice cream, right? Yes, but it can make protein ice cream. Oh, I haven't seen a ton about it. I know of it, but tell me more. I'm surprised. I don't have it. I'm deciding if I'm going to spend $250 on it, but it looks like a coffee machine, but you combine whatever ingredients. I don't know. I think it takes like pudding and flavors, and then you put the protein powder in there and you stick it in the machine... And it does whatever it does to it to turn it into ice cream. And it's does it take cream. a long time, you think? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, it, it what I see on social media is you stick it in, you turn it on, it does its thing, and then it's ready. Wow. That might be, now that I don't need an ice maker, maybe that's my next in- investment. <laughs> Just reminds me of the Nugget Ice Maker a little bit because mm-hmm. there was a point when Nugget Ice Makers were relatively new and they were going big on social and every influencer was sharing their Nugget Ice Maker or giving one away and Ninja Creamy is kind of like that now too. Yeah. I'm going to have to put that on my list. 
for things we need. We're getting, it's hard when you move in New York, like oftentimes apartments are very different and the furniture you take with you doesn't fit or, you know, whatever. And so we're pretty used to not investing in like nice furniture and getting things that fit the space when we move. And so we're moving to an apartment that's double the size for less rent, um, which is exciting, but none of our furniture is really going to be appropriate in this. Like we have a couch that's basically a love seat and it just is going to be tiny (laughs) in the new living room. And so I'm looking forward to actually shopping for like furniture that's comfortable and will last longer than a year or two. So two questions. Are you going to have a second bedroom? Yes. Okay. That's great. And then the second question is how permanent does the move to Austin feel or move into the apartment feel? Is it a one year, potentially three, five plus? Um, We will have a second bedroom and bathroom. That's great. So a full guest experience, (laughs) if ever you would like to visit. Um, I it's at it's at least a year. It's probably I think we've agreed that we're going to give it two years because the first year we're anticipating just like being slightly uncomfortable for a while. You know, <laughs> it's going to be very different. Our community that we've built in New York won't be there, um, and we'll be meeting a lot of new people. So it feels like we at least have to give it that second year to like settle into a new normal and, and decide. Um, so but we've you- also talked about like investing in property. And so even if it doesn't work out that we want to live there forever, it might be a place that we want to invest in based on the conversations around people leaving big cities and moving to Austin and it may be being a new Silicon Valley and, and things of that nature. Know. I don't have personal experience with this, but did you know you can rent furniture? I did know that. And I could not convince Julio to do it. It would, I don't understand why not. That's a conversation for another day. Sure, Because for financial reasons, it's not a great investment. (laughs) Yeah, that is true. But I love that they come and pick it up when you're done with it. And it is very much something that would come in handy if you can afford it in New York, because like moving a bed out of, I mean, we have a lot, we have a elevator, so I'm grateful for that, but we didn't, I didn't have an elevator in my first apartment and moving beds and desks and stuff up and down stairs is miserable. That's enough to make me not want to live wherever that apartment was. (laughs) Oh yeah. And that's the more common is no elevator. Yeah. It, it's a little bit of a luxury to have an elevator building. So my whole dream of moving to New York, it's a really good thing I never did that because <laughs> it doesn't sound like a lifestyle I would be happy with. <laughs> yeah. And I've been seeing, I'm sure that I'm being like targeted with people moving out of New York content on TikTok and Instagram and stuff, but I have seen people talking about like, you know, you're 22 and you have to take your laundry to the laundromat down the block. It's annoying, but it's not a big deal. But all of a sudden you're 42 and you have to take your laundry down your sixth floor, walk up to the laundromat. And eventually you just decide like, is it worth it to you? And 
for us right now, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) You'd pay a lot of money and you get, you get to be around things that you might not otherwise be around. And oftentimes you get to be around them first before anyone else in the country, but it's also exhausting to schlep your, your laundry down the block to a laundromat. Yeah. I actually never thought too much about the laundry, but what I did think about that I felt like I would hate was grocery shopping. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at moving to New York. Grocery delivery was not, either there wasn't a thing or it wasn't mainstream. It was not something that I was familiar with. So the thought of going to the grocery store, buying groceries, maybe having a wheelie cart. Cause I don't know how else you would do that. <laughs> and then taking it upstairs. I mean, I have a hard enough time taking them from the uh, car to the kitchen yeah. um, at land. <laughs> oh yeah. Grocery shopping is a whole different thing in New York compared to a place where you can drive your car and like stock up your car. And maybe you have a full-size refrigerator and also a refrigerator in your garage or something and you can stock up. Totally different experience here. Um, our refrigerator is literally like half the size of a normal refrigerator and yeah there's no space to like fill up for more than a couple of days and so so what did you sorry but what did you do during the pandemic when everybody was like get enough groceries to last for as long as possible that's a good question I mean by that time grocery delivery was a thing and I mean, there we weren't going to be able to stock up for even dry goods for more than a couple of weeks. So we had cans of things, but we weren't, there just wouldn't have been a way for us to really stock up beyond a couple of weeks worth of food. Um, but I agree when I moved here, grocery delivery was not a thing and I had a wheelie cart and <laughs> trying to get the wheelie cart up the stairs was very annoying. Oh, and- I think about that. <laughs> Yeah, so I won't miss those days. I I won't miss also having you go to the grocery store multiple times a week right. because you don't have space for like a full week's worth of groceries. You are getting a massive lifestyle upgrade. Yeah, it'll it'll feel dramatic, I think, um, for a while. And a financial upgrade. Yeah, that's the other thing where we'll double our space and we'll save um, like just in rent, like over $10,000 a year. Wow. Yeah. So, and I mean, it's hard to ignore those kinds of savings. And I remember when you first started talking about it, when we, when we first met and I was like, yeah, you need to move. Imagine how much money you're going to save. And then every so often you'd share a little bit more about a monthly bill or what it costs to live in New York. And when I went there and grocery shopped and bought two or three days worth of groceries for the office and I spent like $80 mm-hmm. at Whole Foods. Yeah. I feel very desensitized to price. Mm-hmm. Um, I was recently hosting a baby shower for a friend and I was at Target buying like decorations and stuff. And there was this decoration that didn't have a tag on it. And so I asked, I was at the self-checkout and I asked, the associate to come over to help me and she was like oh well did you see what it was priced on the shelf it was the only thing there wasn't a tag so they got no I don't know and she's like well what do you want to pay for it and it's like this little wooden duck (laughs) on wheels and I was like I don't know like 20 25 dollars 
And my friend's mother was with me and she's from Missouri where we were for this party. And she was like, what? I know like $10. And so the, the lady at Target ended up giving it to me for $7, which felt like a steal. Yeah. But it made me realize how like skewed my perception of prices of things are because I wouldn't, if she wouldn't, if that, if my friend's mother wouldn't have been there, wouldn't have even realized that I had like overshot that. Wow. Yeah. When you were describing what it was, I was like $10, maybe 12 at Target. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Things are just expensive here and it's hard to escape, you know, like expensive rent, expensive food, everything. Wow. Well, I can't wait till you're closer to me. <laughs> I agree. I'm. You'll have to give me tips on uh, activities to do when it's really hot outside and how you guys keep cool in Florida heat. Yeah, well, you'll have your pool. So there's at least that. Yeah, that's true. And we'll have a balcony too. It'll be the first apartment that we have that has an outdoor space. That's great. Are you um, worried at all about hurricanes or does any of that environmental stuff concern you? Um, you know, I haven't thought too much about it. We experience hurricanes a a little bit in New York every once in a while. And I grew up in a tornado heavy area. Right. I've kind of been surrounded by like that kind of stuff my entire life, but I have not experienced a hurricane in the way that like you have in Florida and with your hurricane parties and stuff. I just, I forgot that we were working together when Hurricane Ian came. And you all were in New York and it was probably crazy for you to to hear what was happening at my house during that time. Yeah, it was crazy. I've never experienced a hurricane in that way, you know, like beyond just a little extra rain. Yeah, hopefully it won't be that bad. But I something I hear a lot from people that are moving to Florida specifically or talking about moving to Florida is aren't you afraid of the hurricanes? And I'm desensitized to it because I grew up here. And if I was thinking about moving to somewhere that was heavy with tornadoes, that would probably terrify me. So you have enough experience to not be too afraid of it. (laughs) Yeah. What was the hurt? Do you remember the hurricane that was like really intense in New York in the 20 teens? Was it like Hurricane Sandy maybe? I don't remember which one. There was one that was like really bad here and Julio was here at that time. I hadn't yet moved. So he has a little more experience with intense hurricanes, but I find that my like life motto has kind of become like, you can't control what you can't control. So I try to intentionally take myself out of worrying about things that I can't control. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always work. Yeah. Um, All the controllables. Yeah. But it helps, you know, in some of those anxieties to, to say those things to myself. So that's part of why my outlook is that way. I'm sure that if I were in my apartment and there was like a severe hurricane going on, I'd be terrified. (laughs) Well, you just made it through the crazy smoke, which that would terrify me. That would terrify me. Yeah. I was glad I didn't have to go outside luckily like working from home I just had dinner with a friend of mine last night and she had to go into the office that day and people in New York just aren't used to wildfires affecting them in that way so like just really had no idea that they 
should beware of going outside or wear a mask or whatever. Um, and there were people that were just like chilling outside in this like orange haze. Yeah. Seeing it on Instagram and TikTok, it reminded me of the early days of the pandemic. There was a lot of, if you're near the smoke, don't vacuum. You might raise any smoke that settled into your carpet or your rugs. There's a lot of content like that. It reminded me just of the early days of the pandemic of Mm -hmm. wear your mask and use hand sanitizer and how to open a door without touching it things like that. So, right. Yeah. Julio, the day before it was like really intense. Julio had gone out to the store and he came back and he was like, it's so weird. It looked like it was going to rain all day basically, but it wasn't that like orange dystopian phase. And he came back and he was like, it's so weird. It smells like burnt wood out there. Like a bonfire. Yeah. Bonfire. Yeah. Which is just not something that you smell in New York city. It's just not a, I mean you saw a lot of things <laughs> of all the smells you don't smell that yeah. <laughs> so it was that felt a little bit dystopian like looking up why is this going on and also how quickly it can change you know in just a couple of days right yeah well, we didn't touch on any of the topics that I thought that we might I wanted to talk about female friendships and grief and kind of some of those things that you and I have bonded over throughout our friendship so far. So maybe we can do a part two with you. We, you and I spent a lot of time nerding out about direct consumer e-commerce, <laughs> which was, une- it was unexpected. <laughs> I would love to do a part two. I have so much to say about grief and female friendships and life. So yeah, I would be thrilled to do that. Okay. So before we end this episode, I want to do rapid fire questions. They're mm-hmm. all they're all coffee themed. They're low stakes. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, there's just five of them. So hot or iced coffee? Iced, but it really depends on the day. Okay. Iced. Go to coffee order currently. A almond milk latte iced with, if it's from Starbucks, add caramel drizzle. Okay. Yum. Favorite local coffee spot? Oh, that's a hard one. You'll answer it now, and then you'll have to answer it again when you move to Austin. Okay. Local. There is a place near me called Bake Shop, and it's um, a cute little plant store slash coffee shop. So I really enjoy that cafe, um, and I will miss it. there. But I used to live in a different part of Brooklyn, and that's what comes to mind first. There's a little local coffee shop called Parade. And I really loved that place too. What makes that one special? Probably because I lived in a more residential area in Brooklyn. And so there were basically very few coffee shops. And so it became my like neighborhood spot and I knew the barista. And so there was kind of that community uh, feeling there. Um, And I miss it a little bit because we left that area two or three years ago. Yeah. Great. And you kind of already answered this in your go-to coffee coffee order, but milk or milk alternative? You know, I prefer milk. Okay. Taste-wise, but I have some kind of undiagnosed lactose intolerance. So I do choose milk alternatives more often. And typically almond milk, I take it? Yeah, I used to drink soy milk and then it seemed like people were freaking out about soy milk, changing your hormones and 
you know, I don't know. I have not personally looked into any of the studies. I don't know the validity, but there were enough rumors going around that it switched me to almond milk. You read enough headlines. (laughs) Just in case. Have you tried oat milk? I have. I do really like oat milk. Um, And sometimes I'll do oat milk, but it's a little like thicker. So it feels more like um, an indulgence and like a dessert kind of coffee. Awesome. And then Starbucks or Dunkin'? Starbucks, even though I live in the Northeast and probably should answer Duncan, um, Starbucks is my go-to. Same. It's superior in every way. <laughs> I have to agree. And I, I mean, we've been out of creamer because we've not gone to the grocery store because we're packing to move. And that has been my excuse to get Starbucks like three out of the last five days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I made, so I had COVID all last week. I don't know if I told you that. So I wasn't in the gym. I wasn't leaving my house. So Colin brought me Starbucks here and there. But normally my favorite thing to do is go to the gym and then go get an iced Americano and take it with me on my walk. That's Mm. my favorite part of my routine. And I haven't gotten to do that at all. So got back in the gym yesterday. I'm going after this and I'm only looking forward to the coffee. (laughs) That's amazing. No, those like those moments in your day are so important to have something to small, even though they're small to look forward to. And, um, I think that's really special. I'm glad you're getting to do that today. (laughs) Thanks. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate you and your time and I can't wait to do part two so that people can hear some more from you. Amazing. Thanks, Kelsey. With a little bit of love And a whole lot of you